The question that's been on my mind in the early days of 2020 is, what's the difference between living this new year in light of New Year's resolutions as opposed to living in response to revelation? Especially the revelation that God is with us, that God is for us, and that he is a shepherd that goes before us. But before we go there, I want to take a moment just to say a few words of thanks. I want to say thank you to those that supported uh, me and the kids as we, in the weeks leading up to Christmas. There are many of you that provided meals. There are those of you that babysat so that I could do some semblance of work. There are those of you that supported us with resources and supported us in prayer. And I want to say thank you. It was a communal effort through and through, and I appreciate that. I also want to say thank you for supporting us in being away for Christmas Eve and going to Canada to be with Susie. That was a great gift to us as a family to be together for Christmas, and we hope that we will not have to be apart from you for many Christmases to come. Uh, Susie has received her visa a lot sooner than we expected, which is good news, and we are hoping that she will safely and securely cross the border and uh, return here to Orange County on Tuesday. So I look forward to that. We all look forward to that. And with all the documentation we need and peace of mind, we hope to put down roots in a new year. I think the New Year's resolutions for our family are pretty simple. Stay put, don't travel, and avoid paperwork at all costs. Now, how many of you have made New Year's resolutions for 2020? Anybody? Oh, is this not a thing anymore? (laughs) Have I just been, I've missed the boat. I thought this was still a thing. Yeah, maybe not at this church. You guys know better. (laughs) It's kind of an interesting cultural phenomenon, though, isn't it? Because it still lingers in some places. And it kind of has, it's a tradition that has deep roots in some sense. I mean, think of some of the earliest Christians in, in New England, say, in the early 18th century. Think of, for example, Jonathan Edwards. He wrote this this famous 70 resolutions in 1722 to 23. He was at the end of his ministry training and he was looking at a life of ministry ahead of them and he was wanted to set a series of resolutions that would guide him. And so here's just a few. He said, I resolve to do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory and to my own good profit and pleasure. I resolve to do whatever I think in my duty to be for the good and advantage of humankind in general. And then the resolutions go on, there's 70 of them. I resolve not to give way to listlessness, never to do anything out of revenge, never to speak evil of anyone, to study the scriptures steadily, constantly, and frequently, and the list goes on. See, his resolutions were not merely for a new year, they were for a life well lived. So resolutions can have their place. They can help us live with a certain sort of intentionality and meaning and purpose in the days ahead a way of refusing to allow the ebb and flow of our cultural and circumstantial tide to dictate and determine our lives. But what I've been wondering at the beginning of this year is what if we approached our life through a different set of categories? What if instead of resolutions, we determined to live in terms of revelations, in terms of revelation? 
I mean, consider this with me for a moment. In the Bible, revelation is not just words on a page, although it includes that. Revelation is like the atmosphere in which we live and breathe and move and have our being. We live in the world, says the Bible, in which the heavens declare the glory of God, in which day and night pour forth speech. We live in a world in which God appoints and anoints prophets who say, thus saith the Lord. And we live in a world in which God becomes flesh and shows himself among us, a living, breathing human being saying, this is who God is. We live in a world of revelation. So according to the Bible, all the facets of our life are to be lived as one continuous response to God's personal and multifaceted and all-embracing revelation. It is the air we breathe, it is the context we inhabit. It is the reality that defines our lives. See, the potential pitfall with resolutions is that the initiative all too often lies with us. We determine the course. We set the agenda. We mark the pace. But with revelation, the opposite is the case. God takes the initiative. In Revelation, God determines the agenda and sets the pace for our life. In Revelation, he shows us the goal we're heading towards and the means to getting there. In Revelation, he opens himself up to us. In the incarnation, dare we say, even makes himself vulnerable to us. So we're faced not simply with another blueprint for living, but we actually come face to face with the source of life himself in human flesh. In Revelation, God draws near to us, and he draws us near to him so that there is a living encounter between the source of life and those who have received life at his hand. So my question for you this morning is, what would it look like if your new year was shaped not primarily by a set of resolutions it seems you haven't made? but by a personal encounter with the living God. A personal, life-giving, healing, transforming, utterly arresting engagement with God. And what if every season of your life, whether it's a season of sorrow and lament or a season of rejoicing and gratitude, was seen as taking place in the presence of the Holy Child, Emmanuel, God with us. What would it look like if our new year was shaped not primarily by resolutions, but by a response to God's revelation? And I think this is what the story of the Magi is inviting us to consider. The revelation of God in our response to it. So what is it that's revealed to the Magi? What is it that God wants to reveal to you and I this morning? I should say you and me this morning. Well, it's simply this. It's that Jesus is king. That's a pretty simple statement, but what kind of king is he? And Matthew layers things into this passage that help us come to deeper and deeper understanding of Jesus' kingship. And the first layer is this notion of Davidic kingship. Matthew layers scriptural allusion upon scriptural allusion from the Old Testament to drive home the point 
that this child who is God with us, Emmanuel, is the long-awaited Davidic king that the whole Old Testament was anticipating and was longing for and was waiting for and was looking forward to. So Matthew alludes to Numbers chapter 24, verse 17, which says that a star will arise representing a king who will defeat Israel's enemies. He alludes to Micah chapter 5, verse 2, that talks about a ruler who will come from Bethlehem of Judah and who will deliver Israel from foreign oppression. Matthew alludes to 2 Samuel 5, 2, which talks about one of David's descendants who will be a shepherd like no other shepherd Israel seen before will be an everlasting and righteous shepherd who holds the throne and is never dethroned. Matthew alludes to 1 Kings chapter 10, where the queen of Sheba comes from the east. The Magi are coming from the east. And she comes to Solomon bearing riches. And we're told in 1 Kings 10, it's gold and expensive spices. And Matthew refers to Isaiah chapter 60. A multitude of Arabs coming from the east, think of the Magi again, will flock to Israel and they will bring gifts of gold and frankincense, says Isaiah 60, in an act of unbridled praise to the God of Israel. See, Matthew is doing this imaginative layering of allusions from the Old Testament to communicate something that Paul says so explicitly in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. All the promises of God find their yes in him. He's the Davidic king. He's come to set his people free. But Matthew pushes things even further. He says not only is Jesus the Davidic king, he is the divine king in human flesh. He does this um, at the very beginning of the passage. The Magi, when they come to inquire of Herod, notice the language that they use in verse 2. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews, they say? For we saw his star when it rose, and we have come, notice, to worship him. Matthew uses a very particular Greek word here that was used in the ancient world to denote what loyal subjects offered to their king and their king only. It actually described a physical act of prostrating oneself before the king in an act of adoration and reverence, and loyalty, and worship. And so it's so interesting, the Magi come to King Herod, and they say, where is the king? We want to worship him. It's not you, Herod, nor is it Caesar. And it's interesting, because this becomes kind of a semi-technical term in Matthew for the worship that belongs to God as king and him alone. And so it's so surprising to hear Matthew use this word, 10 times in reference to Jesus in particular. So, for example, Matthew 14, Jesus walks on water to meet his disciples in the boat. Says, Jesus, walk out to me. I mean, says, Peter, walk out to me. Peter walks out and starts drowning. and Jesus rescues him and gets in the boat. And the disciples fall down and worship him. Only God can do. Matthew chapter 28, the risen and ascended Jesus appears to his disciples and says, greetings, as you do when you've risen from the dead. 
His disciples recognize him and they bow down right away and they take hold of his feet and Matthew says, and they worship him. Matthew chapter two, the Magi traveled to Jerusalem. Herod, where is the king born to be king of the Jews? We've come to worship him. See, what Matthew is saying is that this child who is born is not just the long-awaited Davidic king. He is God in flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the divine king who alone is worthy of worship. And because he's the divine king, he is a king for everyone. Not just the shepherds of Israel, but the magi of Arabia. Jesus is a king for everyone, and everyone is welcome in his kingdom. And so the question that our our passage then presents to us is like, how will we respond to his welcome? How will we respond to the revelation of his kingship? And in our passage, we see three different responses. We see the response of Herod, of self-preserving fear. We see the response of the chief priests and the scribes of learned apathy. And we see the response of the Magi, self-giving worship. Herod responds with self-preserving fear. Notice what he does. He hears the news of this king. He feels threatened. So he starts working in secrecy to control the situation. (laughs) And then dishonesty comes to the fore about his intentions in relation to this king. And then ultimately, in the next passage, we see that he lashes out against him tries to get rid of them. And the question that I think Herod raises for us is, do we really want a king? Sometimes, like Herod, we may say we want a king. Tell us about him so that I can come and worship him. But deep down, we feel threatened. We're troubled. We're unsettled. We're disturbed by the presence of this king. Why? Well, there's lots of reasons that we could be disturbed by Jesus' presence in our lives. (laughs) But I think one of them is just in the broken state that we're in, we resist living under any authority that's not our own. And a king is one who comes bearing sovereign authority. I think that's why the Apostle John, in 1 John chapter 3, verse 4, he describes sin as lawlessness. Sin as lawlessness. We may be attracted to the teachings of Jesus, We might find his figure really interesting. We may agree with a lot of what he has to say, but when it comes to those really difficult or somewhat confusing bits, when it comes to those places where what Jesus is calling us to as disciples seems to not quite line up with what we would like him to say or what we would desire him to say, it's all too easy just to choose our own path, to assume that we know better, to chart our own way. And then I think like Herod, where we find ourselves often is expending great amounts of time and energy to uphold the illusion of our own rightness, of our own power, and our own self-sufficiency. We've made a decision. Now we need to protect it. So that leads us into telling lies and keeping secrets and hiding weaknesses and masking fears and distancing ourselves from intimate relationships. And I think we see Herod doing this. I mean, there's stories of Herod. He went through some 10 wives in his later years. 
he distanced everyone that would get close to him because he feared that they would expose the illusion of his own self-sufficiency and authority. So I think he presents us with this question, Do the king has revealed himself to us, the king has come to be with us, the king has come to rule and reign, but do we want a king? And maybe we need to be honest that we really don't. Maybe we don't actually want a king, and maybe we would much prefer a superhero. I find it interesting that we live in a culture of superheroes. I mean, think about the number of movies that have come out in the last five or ten years, years about superheroes. They're all over the place. We love superheroes. I had friends in Scotland who loved superheroes so much. I remember the first time we went over to their house, they opened the door and welcomed us, and they were both wearing a superhero t-shirt. And then in the entryway to their house, they had these posters that were about this big of different of the Marvel movies, and it was, it was great. I didn't have much to talk about with them because I don't know. The, <laughs> but they're great people, so it was good. The interesting thing about superheroes is they come to us in our, our hour of need, but then they go away. They help us, but then they leave us alone. They don't really require and demand much of us. See, superheroes save us, but then they go away. We get all the benefits, but then we're left to ourselves. We're allowed to think and feel and desire and act and relate as we please and as we choose. And the thing is, is that Jesus didn't come to be a superhero. He came to be a king. He didn't come to do a, moment, a momentary rescue mission and then leave us to ourselves again. He came to rule and reign over the entire cosmos and over each individual life. He came to restore the glory and dominion of God to the hearts and minds and imaginations of people. He came to bring about a new world order in which people learn to live and relate in a totally different way. He came to bring about a spiritual revolution, taking people who are convinced that the reign of God is a threat to their freedom, and persuading them that the reign of God is the source of their freedom. See, in Herod, I think we see a response that we know all too well in ourselves and in people around us. We see a person who lives in perpetual resistance to the revelation that Christ is not a superhero, he's a king. We see a person who responds to others with self-preserving fear, who is unsettled by the prospect of life without control, and who works really, really hard to maintain the illusion that they have control. And I think in response to that, we have to say, Lord, have mercy upon us. Hear our prayers. And I think we also have to say that the message of Christmas is that it doesn't have to be that way. Now, some of us don't have such troubled and anxious and hostile responses to the king as Herod does. Some of us are a bit more like the chief priests and the scribes. We're very learned, we're very informed. We have lots of degrees that come after our name. And yet sometimes that can lead us to a place of apathy. See, the chief priests and the scribes, they know the scriptures. They've studied the scriptures, but they don't search for their fulfillment. 
It's what Jesus says in John chapter 5. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, the prophets say a child would be born in Bethlehem, a ruler and shepherd for God's people. The chief priests and scribes know this, and yet they do not, as far as the passage tells us, follow the magi to Bethlehem to see the child. They know, but they do not act. They hear, but they do not follow. They learn, but they do not seek. And brothers and sisters, I know lots of you in here are kind of what you could call religious leaders and religious professionals and academics, and I'm included in that. And I think this is something that we're prone to. There is the subtle lie that says the more, you, the more you know, the deeper you go. And knowledge is really good, but it doesn't necessarily take us deeper. <laughs> we can know a whole lot and forget that the heartbeat of the Christian life is found in this diligent searching, in this earnestly seeking for the presence of the living God in the face of Jesus Christ. I love this prayer from St. Anselm. Oh, Lord, my God. Teach my heart this day where and how to find you. You have made me and remade me, and you have bestowed on me all the good things I possess, and still I do not know you. I have not yet done that for which you made me. Teach me to seek you, for I cannot seek you unless you teach me, or find you unless you show yourself to me, And he ends with these beautiful words. Let me seek you in my desire. Let me desire you in my seeking. Let me find you by loving you. And let me love you when I find you. See, we may not be living in open hostility to the king. But we may have been lulled into a false sense of learned apathy towards the king. We know much. But do we desire and do we seek? Do we find? And when we find, do we love? The response of the Magi is anything but apathy. (laughs) They know so much less than the chief priests and the scribes, and yet they follow the little that they know. Verse 10, when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they'd offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. A lot of preaching focuses on the gifts of the Magi, the gold and the frankincense and the myrrh, and it's somewhat understandable. It's kind of cool, and it's rich, rich with symbolism. But what I want to point out to you is notice the order The Magi see the child with Mary. They fall down and worship him. And only then do they open their treasure boxes. In other words, they offer themselves to the king before they offer their gifts. I have a friend who's a pastor in Scotland. We studied together and became good friends. And he told me about a conversation that he was in with a young woman in his church who came to him, and she was angst-ridden. 
the question was, what does God want from me? Have any of you either asked, ever asked that question? <laughs> what does God want from me? And, and Jared, being a good pastor, said, what do you think? And she proceeded, he said, for some 10 or 15 minutes to list all these things that she thought God wanted from her. And when she stopped, Jared just looked at her and said, God doesn't need anything from you. She said, then what does God want from me other than me? Jared said, nothing. That's the point. God wants you. Magi offer themselves before their gifts. The Apostle Paul puts it this way in Ephesians 1.5. In love, God predestined us for adoption to himself as sons and daughters through Jesus Christ. Sarah Edwards, the wife of Jonathan Edwards that I mentioned at the beginning, once remarked of her husband that he had a constant sense of God's nearness to him and of his dearness to God. That's the message of Christmas, brothers and sisters. God wants to be with you and he wants you to be with him. God enters into the messiness of our human family so that we may enter into the glory of God's family. So the question becomes, will you draw near to the child? Will you enter into God's family? Will you offer yourselves in worship and loving adoration before him? I think that's what God's inviting us into in 2020. And may it be so in our lives. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.